This is episode 102 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are The Wild Plum, the Wild Edible You Want to Know When the SHTF, and These Five Survival Knots Can Save Your Life in the Wilderness, and How I Formed a Mutual Assistance Group. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before I get started, uh, don't forget, uh, I am trying to do a Houston Prepper meetup. So if you are in the Houston area and you just kind of want to link up with some other preppers, uh, we're looking at this Thursday night. So um, send me, uh, I'm going to link to... A link on the show notes so if you want to go to episode 102 or even if you you get show notes on your phone or whatever you know if you're in iTunes you'll be able to click straight to that Houston Preppers meetup link uh, and want to let you know that I'm also going to send out uh, I kind of messed up today I, I, yesterday I talked about sending out uh, an email to uh, the webinar with the Sun Oven, and that you could also, when you register, you get this, you know, free ebook. And uh, I put the wrong link on there when I first sent it out in the morning, and I was like, man, I can't believe it, uh, sending it out to the, you know, the wrong, the wrong uh, web address. And so I quickly sent out another one, just a, a real quick one, and uh, it was good. A lot of people, a lot of people are hitting it and going to it, and uh, hopefully registering it. I was giving the people that are on the email list uh, the opportunity to register first because they are on that email list, and then I'm going to go ahead and start releasing it. So tomorrow, uh, tomorrow is going to be a big day. You know, I got the interview with Mark Goodwin, that really long one that'll take up that whole uh, the whole podcast. It's probably going to going to be two podcasts, and um, I'll also release that uh, that link. So if you want to go check that out and uh, and register for that webinar, uh, it's going to be good. And I, I was. Looking at some of the information, and uh, I'm pretty impressed just by reading about the Sun Oven. Uh, I'm pretty impressed, and in talking with with Paul, uh, who's going to who who's with Sun Oven International, who's going to be doing the webinar, uh, I'm pretty impressed. So I'm looking forward to it. All right, so let's go ahead and get going on the podcast. Hey, this first uh, article comes uh, from Ed that Matters, and that's my my personal uh, preparedness blog. Um, but this is a guest post, and it's a guest post by James, who has done some other articles. And I'll tell you what, when James sends me an article to put, post up, I, I'm going to post it because he sends quality stuff. Uh, I've mentioned it before. I get a lot of articles. I turn probably one to two articles a week down just because it's junk. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I finally got, I, I try to be nice, you know, like, hey, I, you know, can you do this? Can you do this? And I finally got to the point, like, I'm sorry, I can't use this. Uh, but James, when he sends me an, uh, an article, I mean, I know I'm going to use that one. Uh, and so, and I don't post too many guest posts on on uh, Ed that matters. I mean, a lot of them are mine, but uh, James is definitely one that I'm going to take. And he's he has this article on the wild plum. I mean, he always does good research and always has good information. And so I think this is going to be. Uh, I was I was surprised to see how many times this was shared out. Um, you know, being that it's a foraging. Uh, article, but uh, you know, foraging is a big deal. Um, when you when you're talking about, you know, you, we have our food and all that kind of stuff, but there's so much food out there in in the wilderness, so much food out there in nature. Uh, we just don't know it, right? And we don't know 
the advantages of that food because we've been taught that they're weeds. You know, we do, uh, people, you know, like, hey, just put some spray some Roundup on it. You know, uh, it's just weed. You're like, no, man. There's 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 a lot of benefit to it. You can eat it. There's uh, medicinal herbs, and I mean, there's just so much out there. And the key is to learning uh, learning about these. And you don't want to become overwhelmed. You do have to be careful. You do have to be smart about it. Um, you know, we talked uh, recently about uh, Greg, uh, Greg over at the Rural Economist who had that Kickstarter, and he's going to be sending out. I mean, it got funded, so he's going to be sending out. Uh, you know, those PDFs on on what he's you know creating those uh, uh, those PDFs on uh, wild edibles. So I'm looking forward to that. But you know, you take one or two every so often, and you really learn that. Uh, wild edible and so you really get it into your long-term memory so you have that that information and then you keep adding to it right um you, you know you don't want to you know, okay i'm going to learn 15 new wild edibles this weekend that wouldn't be smart um but uh on this one the wild plum it uh there's a there's a lot of advantage to it and so uh J james has a little bit of fun here so well, let's go ahead and get started on this one um 200 that's the response if the question is what percentage of RDA of vitamin A is in a handful of wild plums? RDA is recommended daily allowance, handful, approximately 7 ounces, used for the purpose of this article. If that fact alone doesn't dilate your pupils and keep you engaged to learn more about the widely overseen abundance of wild bumper crops that's all around us, I don't know what would. Today, we take a look at one specific nature's gift, wild plums. Sure, wild plums are not as sexy to talk about as that new gaudy zombie killer throwing axe that comes in 15 colors. I'll give you that. But this is the point that separates men from the boys. A smart prepper clear on his priorities, sincerely looking to prepare for whatever the future holds, and a tire-kicking prepper, with air quotes, who's all about being cool. Now that we got that out of the way, and probably offended a few people in the process, let's get down to business. Am I cherry-picking, pun intended, pieces of information for effect? I've heard this one before when I talk about wild edibles. Comments like, sure, but you can find that kind of sensationalistic bit of information and run with it to get people's attention. So let's see if I'm doing it here. Head-to-head -head wild plum versus a quote-unquote superfood. Just for reference, let's compare the wild plum to the wildly praised superfood broccoli. By the way, I hate the term superfood. It means nothing and just leaves you guessing what's in that, what's in it that's so super. Let, let us see how the superfood fares against the simple wild plum in some of the most essential nutrients. We've put together the tables below to compare the nutrients in 7 ounces of wild plums and the same amount of raw broccoli. The numbers are based on the needs of 200 pound, 40 year old, moderately active man. And so there is a, a nice table that he's put here that you can go look at, and it breaks it down. You know, calories, 180.6 uh, uh, kcal, 6% uh, of your goal for the wild plum. And over on broccoli side, it's 67.5 kcal, 2% uh, of the goal, right? Uh, and so then you have all the other breakdowns here. Uh, of it in all the different vitamins. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read all these vitamins and nutrients and everything that's there. Uh, but uh, there's you know a lot of good stuff. But the wild plum does have a lot. Uh, vitamin A is off the charts here, uh, over here. And um, 
So you you know you got that going for you. All right, let's continue going. So naturally, broccoli doesn't even compare close in terms of energy it provides. 67 kcal versus 180 kcal, but that's beside the point since we know it's not a calorie dense food. Potassium to sodium ratio: an average adult needs about 3,500 to 4,000 milligrams of potassium per day. A handful of wild plums provides about one fifth of that. That the same amount of broccoli gives you about 10% less. Again, that's not the main fort, forte of wild plums if we're talking potassium. It's the potassium to sodium ratio. In wild plums, the ratio is approximately 100 to 1 milligrams, while the ratio to broccoli is 10 to 1. We're not making the case here that you can overdose on sodium by eating broccoli. The point is that the ratio in wild plums is at the sweet spot and you don't have to worry about sodium. It's as simple as that. Vitamin C. A handful of wild plums gives you about one-fourth of the vitamin C you need per day. As you can see in the table, it's the only nutrient where broccoli significantly beats wild plums by giving you 200% of what you need. Two thinking points here. Think about where you would find broccoli in a survival situation. And less importantly, but still food for thought, think about how much 7 ounces of broccoli is in terms of volume. It takes a plate to get that much of a broccoli. It takes a plate to get that much of broccoli, if you can imagine eating all that, right, without drenching it in cheese. Uh, with wild plums, it takes about 10 seconds to pick a handful and about 30 seconds to eat it. Vitamin A. Almost six times more vitamin A in seven ounces of wild plums than in broccoli. To make my point here, I'd ask you to Google foods rich in vitamin A. I'd bet you a nice red zombie skull splitting axe that almost every site you look at will list broccoli among the top ten sources of, of the vitamin. Take a moment to look, look that thought. Take a, sorry, take a moment to let that thought sink in. Why is this important? Unless you stumble upon a field of pumpkins, sweet potatoes, and carrots, or a tree that grows eggs and whole milk, sources of vitamin A in a survival situation would be scarce. Wild plums are among the few naturally occurring foods that are this rich in a vitamin that crucial, that's crucial for all of the below. Eyesight. It's a precursor for retinol, retinol, and retinic acid, all paramount for your eyes, Precursor means that your body takes the vitamin and makes the chemicals it needs to feed the eyes. The immune system, necessary for white cell activation to fight off infection. Red blood, red blood cell production, it's the vitamin that allows iron to be built into hemoglobin. To put it simply, it facilitates oxygen to be carried around your body. Sleep. Getting proper sleep is not just about getting the hours. It's about balanced sleep phases and optimal circadian rhythm, the 24 cycles of the body. The body of evidence about just how important vitamin A is for proper sleep has been growing ever since the 2005 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. You don't need to know the scientific nitty-gritty. If you are bored reading about the chemical mumbo-jumbo, let me tell you, it's not a fizz writing about it either. The takeaway from we, from we said above shouldn't be numbers. It should be the simple idea that the abundant nature's gift that is the wild plum. Enough with the broccoli, we get it. I know, I know, I probably overdid it with the broccoli thing. It was just to make a few points. 
Now that we have the basics down, let's move and bite into the meat of this article, the actionable part, where the plum grows, how to spot it, and discern it from toxic shrubs, and where it can be bad for you. This is the part where we'll lose some of you since as the natural distribution map below shows Prunus Americana don't grow throughout the U.S. So there is a map here that uh, is provided in the article that you can kind of see where the wild plums are growing. Um, I, will, I will say this though. We go down into the, the comment section. There's people who were saying, hey, I don't live in the, uh, the states that wild plums, that that map says that wild plums grow, and we have wild plums. So it could be that there's more, uh, maybe this is an old map, uh, maybe uh, the map isn't accurate, but there's a, there's a lot of people from different areas saying uh, that, and maybe when I get to the bottom, I'll, I'll uh, reference that. Its natural habitat ranges from North Dakota and parts of Minnesota in the north down to parts of Alabama and Georgia in the south, and from parts of South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma in the west to Virginia and Carolinas in the east. Not as common as in the states above, it's also sprinkled in some areas of Montana, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and even New Mexico. See the map below. So there's two maps that you can look at. The wild plum grows like a small tree or a high shrub, and it reaches up to 15 feet in height. The crown of the tree is broad with thorny branches and rich white flowers when blooming. It blooms in mid-spring, and it grows is its most active and fruitful in the late spring and through the summer. We won't be getting into all the species and subspecies here. They all belong to the same family and have similar nutritional value. A ripe wild plum is about the size of a cherry, and the color can be anywhere from bright yellow to dark purple. One of the features that stands out is the waxy coating of dust-like yeast that covers the fruit. The white coating is similar to that of a domestic plum, and it serves a very specific purpose. It's a protective layer of natural wax. It keeps the moisture in and protects the fruit from drying out. When broken, the tough skin has what can be described as a crispy texture. If you've ever tasted a wild plum, you're not likely to mistake it for anything else. The taste is distinctively tart and mouth-puckering, especially if it's not fully ripe. As it ripens, it becomes sweeter and not as tart. If I say that there is a term plum bum, you can probably anticipate what risks are involved with eating too much of it. It depends on your digestive system. What I did to come in what I did to come to my plum bum red line is gather some of my some and test my stomach in the safety of my home. In my case, the red line is about fifteen ounces. Anything more than that in one sitting is too much for my bowels. Wild plums are not toxic for people. Whether it's relevant to the reader, I can't, I can't know, but me mention it just as well while the dried or fresh leaves are not toxic. Drying leaves are, especially for small animals. When I say drying, I'm referring to the leaves of a branch that's been broken off and is parching. So, uh, not necessarily he's not necessarily talking about uh, uh, humans there, but animals. And so, if you have any animals that um, you know, you have any wild plum bushes or trees around your area, you know, that might be a consideration there uh, if you have animals uh, around livestock. If you don't get to a nice ripe bundle of wild plums before a murder of crow does, return, return the nature's favor by throwing the kernels around as you go. 
out of the ten you throw, one will take. Little things like this do make a difference in the big picture. This was the part of the series of articles about the wild bumper crops you should know about. In the next chapter, we'll like uh, we'll look at we'll look into more exotic and perhaps more surprising friends we have out there. A nature's version of a multi-practice, the cattail. Until then, stay safe, safe and smart. So, um, a lot of advantages to knowing the wild plum. And so, like when I was talking about there and i think just just the fact of the vitamin a and all the things that vitamin a does for you right if you're in a shtf situation or you know you're in a situation where you're you've run out of vitamins and you're not gonna you're not gonna have vitamins there and your food is you know you have specific food definitely you know you want to have some odd plums around if you can't um so uh yeah so someone from uh said so got you are six got your six said um uh, I'm surprised your map doesn't include Texas. So I grew up in Dickens County, which is northwest Texas in the Rolling Plains region, and there are lots of wild plums there. And so, and my thing was, I I responded to that one because when my dad had a, a a previous property in East Texas, we would go up there, and we knew there were certain places on the road where we would stop, and uh, you know, when they were in bloom and and they were they were coming about, and we would start picking them. Uh, wild plums and exactly like he was saying all that description the only thing is is that we're kind of crazy and we like really sour and bitter things so we still picked plums when they were a little green and so they were really bitter but the kind of bitter like you know just just talking about it my mouth is water. you know like when your jaw start watering you know uh just thinking about it my mouth my mouth is watering just the you know just having that that sour bitter taste i love sour things but anyway so someone said that there, and then another person said they live in Northwest Oregon, and uh, so good post. I live in Northwest Oregon, so I looked up the nutritional profile for plums in general, and while there are a little less, they still have a huge amount of it, vitamin A in them, way more than you'd need. Thanks for spurring my research. So that was from Northwest uh, Oregon. I guess they're uh, the nutritional profile of the plums that they have up there, and uh, we have wild plums, so Shirley uh, said we have wild plums over in Mississippi too. So, uh, you know, the maps, uh, there's, they're growing a little bit more out there than what the maps say. So there's hope out there. Start looking around and start finding them. I like what James said about, you know, hey, you know, throw out, you know, throw out the seeds, throw it out there, man. You don't know where one will catch. And then all of a sudden, uh, at my dad's property that we have right now in East Texas, there's passion fruit everywhere. And it's a vine and it grows on the ground and it's just crazy. Um, of course, the deer get to it and eat it all up before it ever gets to a point where we can pick it. But, um, you know, I, that's not something that I want to, you know, try to you know, rip up. I, I'd, I'd be happy with that stuff growing there. And that hopefully we can get to a point where we can protect a little bit of it so it will grow up. And uh, But we're going to have to protect it from the deer always eating it. So um, there you go. Uh, you know, the wild plum and James is going to be looking at some other articles to write for foraging. Uh, there was, uh, you know, I, I was kind of, um, well, I'd already started a prepper website and I was into 
you know, wanting to learn more about foraging. And I was at the Houston Arboreum doing a wedding, uh, and there was a class going on right next to the room that we were using. And uh, so Meriwether from foragingtexas.com was there doing a class. And so luckily he had his banner and he had his website, so I made a note of it and uh, went to it. And so he teaches classes at the Houston Arboreum, actually in Texas. He teaches them all kind of all over, but he's stationed here in Texas. And uh, recently he wrote a book, well, probably not too, too recent, but uh, April 2016. So it's been over a year, uh, but he did write a book. Um, he, he does have a, a, a good website, foragingtexas.com, that you can go to. Um, but he did write a book, uh, one of the idiot's guides, idiot guides to foraging. And, um, you know, it's, I know some people might just, because it says idiot's guide, might not want to go get that one. But let me tell you, it's got, it's five stars and it has 100 customer reviews. So everybody has given this, this book five stars out of 100 people. Uh, well, okay, so 95% when I scroll down, I guess that's the average, 4.9. It's 4.9 out of five stars. 95% gave it five stars. 5% gave it four stars. So this is a great book. I do have it. When it came out, I did buy it. And you know what? It's not very expensive. It's only $13. Uh, for the paperback and if you want to get it on kindle it's 11.99 so uh you know there's uh, some good stuff and he was a good teacher and so uh you know if you if you're in the houston area around here or even in texas you know hit foragingtexas.com and see where he's given his classes and you can go do that but there's people that give classes foraging classes all over the united states and i'm sure there's got to be a list somewhere that people someone has uh you know has has going or whatever and uh you know you can find someone that can take you through and you can learn a whole lot there i know that uh, mark uh allowed us to you know take pictures and those kinds of things at the houston arboreum you couldn't you couldn't necessarily uh uh pick things and you couldn't you know pull them out of the ground or whatever um, but uh he you know you take pictures you can ask questions you can do video recording you can do all that kind of stuff so um again uh recommend that you go and and start learning a little bit about foraging even like i said even if it's one or two every so often just you really learn it really well and commit that to memory all right so let's go ahead and go on to the next one the next article comes to us from skilledsurvival.com and the reason i picked this um, you know i try to pick articles from wide ranges just like we put articles up on prepper website we try to you know do wide ranges of preparedness survival homesteading all that kind of stuff i'm trying to do that on the podcast i really haven't done uh too much on knots um because a lot of the times when someone does an article on knots it's kind of like hey here's you know you should know this knot and then it's kind of a link to a video or something like that but uh, i like what they did here at uh, skilledsurvival.com they, uh, they give you five knots that you should know that are important. And uh, if you're a Boy Scout, you'll be familiar with all of these. They tell you why uh, the advantage of it, the disadvantage of it, how you can use it. And each one has a, uh, a video to it. So you can go in. So this is one that you're definitely going to want to go and, and check out and go watch the videos. And so I would just encourage you to have a couple of pieces of rope, you know, small pieces of rope. And uh, have them close to you. And every once in a while, when you get a you know t a chance to just kind of uh, you're sitting there doing nothing, you can practice making some knots and uh, you know getting down. You know specifically, maybe work on these five survival knots, right? And getting these knots down because you can use them in so many other ways than just survival. 
But uh, let's go ahead and get going into this one. Again, coming to us from skilledsurvival.com. Five best survival knots, strong life-saving knots you need to know. Whether you're an avid camper, a determined mountaineer, or a wilderness explorer, there's one critical skill you need to have in your repertoire. It's something you did as a kid for fun, and now it can save your life as an adult, tying knots. Various expert sources place emphasis on the same types of knots as lifesavers in outdoor situations. Well, today I'll tell you about a few of those important knots and show you how to tie them like a pro. Here are the top five survival knots you should master. Figure eight knot, bowline or bowline knot, clove hitch, sheet bin, taut line hitch. However, before we deep, deep dive into these five essential survival knots, you've got plenty of paracord, right? I sure hope so, but in case you need some or want to upgrade your cordage, here are six good paracord brands to choose from. So there's some paracord uh, that you can go to Amazon. It links to Amazon. All right, so the figure eight knot. There are three main variations on a figure eight knot. The simple figure eight, the figure eight follow through, and figure eight on a bite. The first knot, as the name implies, is a basic figure eight knot. The two others add on to the original configuration and expand the use of the knot. This is one of the strongest knots you can tie and it maintains up to 85% of the rope's strength. This means that the rope is unlikely to break while you're using it. In its simplest form, a figure eight knot at the end of a rope can keep you from sliding off of it. It's secure and won't come undone because of pressure. You can also create knots along a rope that stay in place and are large enough to grab on when climbing. The figure eight follow through is one of the most useful types of knots for climbing. One reason is that you can make a secure loop at the end of a rope with it, an advantage when someone needs to be hauled up safely. And it can also be used as a foothold when grabbing onto the rope is difficult because of weather conditions. The figure eight on a bite creates a strong loop at the end of the rope that can be clipped onto your anchor. You can also create stable loops in the middle of the rope to use as handholds or footholds. It's an important survival knot for anchoring, especially when working in high winds or carrying gear up or down a steep incline. The drawbacks. The biggest drawback of using the figure eight knot is that it can be extremely hard to untie. This is especially the case if it is being used over and over again. It also uses a lot of the rope's length. On the other hand, it's easy to tell if you've tied it the wrong way with a quick examination. The only real mistake you can make with a figure eight knot is to add an extra loop to the figure. This is easily spotted by examination though. So there is a detailed video on how to do the figure eight knot. Next one is the, again, different, I've heard it pronounced different ways, the bowline. I've always, I learned it with the bowline knot, uh, the, as a Boy Scout bowline knot. Uh, like the figure eight knot, the bowline will hold thousands of pounds of pressure. One difference is that it's easier to untie after use than a figure eight. The bowline make, may be the most dependable of all the survival knots you need to learn. It's also a versatile knot, and there are a variety of ways to use it. You can tie the bowline around things or through them and tie it around yourself, even one-handed. Being able to tie it with just one hand can be a boon when you need to tie a knot in an emergency. A bowline knot forms a loop in the end of a rope, and the knot tightens more with any increase in pressure on the loop. 
That's why it's useful for hanging items from tree limbs like food and survival gear. The bowline can't be depended on when climbing, in part due to human error. It's not terribly difficult to use the bowline incorrectly. If the loop is pulled in a sideways direction, it's possible for the knot to come untied. Because of the possibility of the knot becoming undone, creating a stopper knot beneath the bowline will increase its safety. Again, there's a, a detailed uh, video on how to tie a bowline knot. The clove hitch. A hitch is a knot that connects a rope to an object. The clove hitch is a simple but important survival knot that e that's easy to tie. The benefit you get from it are that it doesn't loosen or slip and you can lengthen or shorten the rope without untying the knot. A clove hitch isn't as strong as the figure eight or bowline knot, but it's a good knot to use for anchoring. It will help you fasten together a shelter because it stays tight and doesn't usually slip or loosen. The clove hitch allows the rope to adjust without untying the knot, making it useful for the lowering, for lowering of heavy objects or moving them to a higher spot. Constant movement, like the kind caused by a fierce wind, will eventually loosen the knots, causing a shelter to become unstable. Checking the knots frequently will allow you to adjust and tighten them. The clove hitch works best if there's pressure on the line, which is why it's good for keeping a tarp or tent stretched. Don't use a clove hitch if the object is tied to, ro tied to rotates because the knot could come untied. So I think the clove hitch was probably like the second knot I ever learned as a Boy Scout. The first was uh, a square knot, right? Uh, so the square knot, then the clove hitch. I think I learned the bowline after that one. So uh, yeah, we used the clove hitch all the times when we were doing lashings, uh, you know, building building different platforms and stuff like that and tripods. Um, so that was always, uh, you know, that was one that always stuck with me because we were we built some cool stuff. All right, so there is a video uh, on how to do a clove hitch. It's a pretty easy knot, but uh, it's a good one to know. All right, this next one's a good one to know too: the sheet bend. Uh, a bend is a knot that ties two pieces of rope together. If you need a longer piece of rope than you have available, the sheet bend will allow you to safely tie shorter pieces of rope together. It works even if the two ropes are dissimilar sizes and or each is made of a different material. Any method of using rope for survival can benefit from the sheet bend. It's a way to put every scrap of rope or paracord to good use. It's also an efficient way to tie together several, several short strands of cord to make a cargo net if you don't have enough longer rope to use. And cargo nets are a basic building block in the making of hammocks, stretchers, snowshoes, and fishnets. The sheet bend isn't a very strong knot, coming in at a breaking strength of 55%. It can also come loose if the rope is particularly smooth or if there isn't much pressure on the knot. If the two ropes are different sizes, making a double sheet bend or making a double bend with the smaller or more flexible cord makes the knot more secure. The most frequent mistake is tying the sheet bend with the shorter end of one rope on the wrong side of the knot. This is a sometimes called the left hand sheet bend. You can check your work by making sure that both free rope ends are on the same side of the knot. So that's important to know. And again, there's a detailed video on how to, uh, how to do that. The taut line hitch. The main benefit of the taut line hitch is that it can slide up and down the cord and tighten. This keeps the rope taut and makes the amount of pressure adjustable. The hitch is also easy to untie when no longer needed. 
A taut line hitch is what you use when sheltering under a tarp. Stringing a rope between two trees and laying your tarp over it is the first step in creating a buffer between you and the elements. To make the tarp into a shelter, you need a firm, tight rope to hang it from. The taut line allows your loop to slide and grip, which makes it easier to, sh to stake in a large waterproof survival tarp. The taut line hitch won't work for getting a rope tight and keeping it that way. It's best for easy duty and it must be adjusted often. It's not hard to accidentally reverse the direction of the rotation when tying the knot, causing it to be weaker. You can check this by making sure that the rope ends face in the same direction. There are different variations of the taut line hitch. The one shown above is the midshipman's hitch, which is the most secure but may be harder to adjust after going through a heavy tension. A lot of people tend to tie the magnus hitch, which is harder to twist but has a higher chance of slipping. To tie the more secure variations of this hitch, at the last part, remember to reverse the direction when tying the last half hitch. So again, there's another video there. The short answer, or why learn survival knots? The short answer is that they can save your life and, those, and these five important knots are a good start. The more of these dependable survival knots you learn, the better off you'll be under adverse conditions. If you have to navigate difficult terrain while hauling supplies, some types of knots will help, it ma help make it easier and safer. If you're lost, the right knots of, for fishing and trapping game can keep you from starving. There's a reason firefighters and Coast Guard rescue crews learn how to tie survival knots. In a life or death situation, a secure rope can save someone from a burning house or a raging storm. You can meet with fire and flood in the backcountry as well, and you'll need to know how to erect a sturdy shelter to protect you from the elements. That's why it's best to start with these five knots and practice frequently until you can tie them easily. You won't regret it. And I agree. Uh, you know, you want to know these knots. Uh, you'll always use them. I mean, you got a truck and you're always tying stuff down. Uh, you know, it's just you're going to want to have a couple of knots in your, uh, you know, in your uh, old uh, brain up there to be able to use and um, and uh, to in, to use them correctly, right? So you're not just. <laughs> have you ever seen someone who's like tied like thousands of knots into something so it doesn't come loose? It's like you don't need to really do that. You know, if you you know one good knot, that might work, right? So uh, uh, good to know some survival knots. All right. So this last article comes to us from Beans, Bullets, Bandages, and You. And it's a good article. I'm, um, you know, I, I normally try to save, you know, the, 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 the one that I think is like, you know, a really good one to focus on because I probably more than likely am going to talk about it more uh, at the end. And so uh, this one is, uh, is entitled How I Formed the Mutual Assistance Group. And uh, he says a lot of information here that, you know, when I first started in preparedness and when I was first, I think I've mentioned it before, but just in case, so bear with me if you've heard this one. But, you know, I remember reading articles at the very beginning where people, and you know, I believe it was a woman writing, who said, like, you know, if my mom, I told my mom or, you know, my family members to prepare and they don't want to prepare. They think I'm crazy. So if the poop hits the fan and they come to my house and they're knocking on my door for help, they're going to be met with a shotgun, you know. And I'm like, how could you possibly even do that? You know, I, I think a lot of people say that. But when reality hits, it, that's not the way it's going to be. And so um, 
I love this article because he he talks a little bit about that, uh, and so he brings things into perspective. So hopefully it'll be uh, uh, it'll be an article for you that uh, you know gets you thinking. Some have wondered how I wound up with a group of 20 to prep for and have voiced the opinion that the mag is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on their own point of view. The short answer is I didn't set out to form a group at all. The group exists whether I prep or not. We all have friends, family, neighbors that we care about. If there is someone in my life I care about enough that I would not turn them away during SHTF and they are likely to show up, then they are part of my mutual assistant group, or MAG. I may or may not choose to tell them, most depending on whether I think they can maintain some degree of OPSEC, but they are in regardless. We all have people in our lives, whether we admit it or not. Meanwhile, on various prepper forums, threads start on how do I find a MAG without breaking OPSEC. The the disconnect is hoping to find someone who will take part of the load. Folks are looking to get more help than they are willing to provide. Once you realize the key is to give more than you expect to receive, the issue becomes clear. People who are less prepared are all around, and OPSEC is your only concern. The other issue is recognition that you will never be completely prepared. However, it is better to be 50% prepared than not prepared at all. Once you realize I'm not going to turn these people away, and I will never be completely prepared, but I can do better over time and that is worth doing, then you're on your way. So how do you plan for this? Start with a sheet of paper, make a list of family members, especially those who do not live with you, like grown children, siblings, etc. Some may not be a concern because they live far away. It is not a problem to drop them off your list if they are unlikely to show up. However, if you have any households of relatives that are close by, you have the following choices. One, talk to them about preparing and hope they will contribute. Hope they don't break your OPSEC. In my own case, I have some young adults in my mag. They can certainly prepare a bob and acquire a couple buckets of rice and beans. I have advised them to do that. I will talk talk about more if they do that much. If not, there is nothing to be gained by further discussion. Two, decide you are simply going to prepare for them and add them to your count. In my case, this includes grandchildren and people that come with someone. I am planning for that young adult with a bob. He or she has a family too. Decide you really will turn them away. In my case, this is anyone not on the list of who is in the mag. Next, consider close friends in the same manner. The number of friends you have that are so close that you will prep for them is likely to be small, but it may be another household or two. Go through the same process. I wound up with 20 people on my list. You may have fewer or you may have more, but there will be people that you cannot turn away. Now, you may be saying to yourself, I can't afford to prep for all these people. That's probably true. However, your alternative is not prepping for them. If nothing happens, it all works out. If what you're prepping for actually occurs, what are you going to do when they show up? You may also be thinking, this doesn't help. I need people who can contribute not just a bigger responsibility. That's also true. But every other prepper has the same issue. Whether they acknowledge it or not, let's say you form a mag with three other families. You think they are all in good shape? SHTF occurs and every family shows up as 10 people instead of four, including you? Now what? 
doesn't it make more sense to be realistic about what is going to happen rather than to plan to turn people away that you are never going to turn away? Maybe you think you can prep for a family of four for a year and stock food accordingly. You wind up with 16. The food is good for three months. You are in exactly the place you were all along. The issue is you weren't realistic about your circumstances. This isn't a bad thing. You are in three months better shape than most other people. You just aren't where you thought you were. You can figure this out now while everything is calm or you can figure it out after Tiatwaki when your mother-in-law shows up. And there's a little smiley face there. <laughs> Once you have a count, you can start to prep for them with your eyes wide open. There are some contingencies worth noting. What happens if someone in your mag doesn't show up? Your preps go further, or you can take in someone else you weren't expecting who does show up. What happens if there is no SHTF event? Then you leave a nice prepper estate. What happens if someone breaks OPSEC? Despite your best efforts, that will probably happen. Deal with it. However, it is less likely to occur with a bunch of family members than lesser acquaintance, acquaintances that you thought might be preppers. I am not where I would like to be with my preps, and I have way too much people to prep for. I may never get to where I want to be. However, when my family shows up in the middle of Tiatwaki, I will be happy to see them and not tearing myself up inside, trying to figure out what to do in the middle of a crisis. Furthermore, I will continue to prep, continuously improving toward the goal I have set for myself. Hopefully, more preppers will start to think this way. Once they do, forming mags will cease to be a concern. Prepping for the mag will be the concern. So there are 14 uh, comments here. I didn't go into reading all of those. You might want to uh, to go check those out, though. You know, I guess someone saying they're a lone wolf. Um, you know, I posted a, 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 a poll not too long ago on Prepper website asking, you know, hey, what do you, you know, what do you foresee, you know, uh, who are you prepping for? Where, you know, what what is it? And I think the majority of it was. Uh, I'm either going it alone or I'm going with, um, I'm going to be, you know, with my, you know, immediate family, you know, and uh, that's, that's what we're preparing for. That's, that was the main numbers there. Let me see if I can get to it. Uh, yeah. So here he goes. Pulling up prepper website. Just a second. Uh, when it comes to my preparedness, it's just me and my immediate family, spouse and kids. That was 47%. And then the next one down was 17%. It's me and my extended family, parents, uncles, aunts, cousins. And then uh, there was 17% of people out there looking for a group to prep with. There was 10% saying I'm going alone. And then 8% said I already have a group that has a plan in place. So, uh, you know, that's uh, a small number there, you know, people who have a plan in place, but it's good that there are people out there who have a plan in place. But I think that it's going to be around when you think about it, when, when, even when you start reading, you know, prepper novels and things like that, people start, uh, even people who aren't really preparedness-minded in the novels, right, eventually they start forming a, a group, a band, a community among themselves, and usually it's family, and then other people come in and, and, and th things like that. But that's where it kind of usually starts. It kind of starts with family. Uh, it's, it starts with, you know, your immediate family and your parents and your brothers and sisters and those kinds of things, and, and it comes in. And so... Um, you know, you might find it a little bit easier to talk to family, uh, you know, 
I know that it's easier for us, at least our family, to talk about it. Uh, even at the beginning when maybe not everybody was 100% on board, uh, it was a little bit easier. Now, I mean, everybody's on board. <laughs> we were always talking about what's going on in the world, so like everybody's on board. Um, so it's a little bit easier when, you, when you're approaching it from that point of view. But uh, I, I think that's the way things would wind up lining up, you know, and I think that's what this article is kind of saying, that there's no way that I would be able to turn away my, my parents, no way that I can turn away my uncle and, you know, my, my uncle and my aunt who, you know, been over for barbecues and, and my cousins and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how, how am I going to turn them away? Like, I'm sorry, uh, you're off to die. And so... Uh, I know we can say that we can write those in for, that stuff in forums and comments and those kinds of things, but it's it would be really really hard. And I'm, I'm sure there's some people out there that would be able to do that, would have no problem doing that. Hey, I prepped for me and my family. I'm going to take care of them. You did not prepare. You go away. And if you don't go away, you're you, you know I'm going to have to defend myself. I know that there's people out there, but there I think the majority of people out there is like. I, I couldn't turn family away like that. And so the the other thing is like knowing that you would be like that, right? Knowing that you would get to that point where he's like, I can't, um, I know that I wouldn't, when it push came to shove, I wouldn't be able to, to turn them away. So what do I do in, in uh, you know, uh, because of that? So maybe you prep a little bit more. And a lot of the times when people say, when they talk about, you know, I'm sorry, you can't stay. I didn't prep for you. A lot of the times that's around food, right? Um, you might, you know, there might be some issues around toiletries and things like that, maybe water. Um, and, but it's usually about those kinds of things. Water, uh, food are the, are the two big things. And so, you know, it, it's not that expensive to put away mylar buckets full of uh or buckets full of uh you know with mylar bags and oxygen absorbers with rice and beans yeah um it kind of gets old and it would suck for eating that for a very very long time but you know uh you can put away a lot of that and if you don't wind up using it or people start coming into your group that have food and stuff well then you have some extra food that you can give away if you need to or you have food that you can uh you know package and, and and uh, barter with or what you know whatever it, it comes to you know I think rice and beans they they last for if you package it right will last for so long that there's no reason why not to do that so the the only issue there is usually storage but anyway you know a lot to consider there and um, you know I think one of the things is is having being able to start that conversation with other people and getting you know starting to see where they're at uh, you know, if there's family members that you're like, hey, where do they stand? Go to their Facebook page and see what kind of things they're talking about. If they're talking about, hey, these protesters are crazy or they're talking about, you know, the Middle East or they're talking about, you know, the economy. And, they, you know, they might be prime, a prime person to start talking about preparedness. I'm like, hey, I, I noticed that you were talking about, you know, that, you know, the world is getting kind of crazy. Have you ever thought about this, you know? Um, uh, so someone, um, so Brian over on the Facebook group today posted, um, or this evening posted an article. It's an older article. It references an older article, uh, of, uh, you know, an NSA, uh, Admiral General. I can't remember exactly who he is, but talked about, uh, you know, it's not if, but when the, the grid goes down and it's, it's referencing an older article, but, you know, you've got people, you can always point to articles like that. It's like, hey, look, here's uh, someone from the NSA 
who's talking at a conference, and he's saying it's not if uh, it happens. It's saying he's saying when it happens. You know. So do you think that there's something to that? You know, you start that conversation like that. Um, you know, and sometimes you can you can kind of spin the conversation to where it's not even really your idea they start kind of going with it you just start planting some seeds of of uh you know conversation starters and, and they start running with it you know hey what about the the g20 you know the protesters man did you see what they were doing over there and kind of you know allowing that kind of go that way and, and and uh you know just kind of talking about it and maybe there are some family members where you just do that for a while right for a couple of months you when you get together with them or when you see them uh, at birthday parties and barbecues and, and you know family events or whatever uh, you know you you bring up certain certain things like that you know that come to mind and get get them to think about those kinds of things and you just do it in a way that's not weird or whatever but start you know you can you can start getting them to think that way and uh, see see where they're at and uh, you don't know they might be in the same they they might be uh dealing with opsec the same th- way that you're dealing with opsec right they might be preppers and and because you've never talked about it they've never talked about it you might find that, that y'all have more in common you know especially if you're kind of like you grew up in the same area and you know maybe with the same kind of ideas and morals and and those kinds of things usually it's a little bit easier to start kind of heading that way unless you just completely you know um they're completely off the rocker right so you know you might be surprised but there's a lot to consider here and and again i've always said this from the very beginning i could not turn away family members i just i I couldn't do it and so i know that you know and talking with my dad and the place up there in the country is like hey man that's that's just you know that's the way it would be you know they're gonna they know they're gonna work their butt off they're going to be hustling it they're going to be doing some work they're not going to be sitting around you know and, and and enjoying uh you know enjoying the 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 good outdoors while everybody else is busting their butt but you know as far as um uh turning them away i i just can't i can't see that so uh good article go check that out and go read the comments over there so um that's it for episode 102 remember tomorrow i'll be releasing the uh the sun oven webinar so you can come and be a part of that and register and get that free ebook the 120 page ebook and and uh, register for uh, that Sun Oven webinar that'll be next week. I'll be in there and uh, uh, learning just you know with the, with with y'all as well. But you know, uh, maybe maybe just have a little bit more knowledge because I've been able to talk with uh, you know with Paul and been able to look at some other materials and stuff like that. Uh, and so if you have a Sun Oven and uh, you know you have, I, I would love to hear some uh some comments or like your thoughts on the sun oven and uh if you would come to episode you know any of the episodes this week right 101 to 105 you know 106 if you'll just come and and drop a comment in there about your experience with sun oven that'd be great man i'd I'd love to uh to hear those comments and uh, i have experience with the solovore but uh looking at the sports oven sun oven but uh, looking at the sun oven it, it it looks like it takes it up a whole nother notch so i'm looking forward to uh to getting into that and then uh looking forward to tomorrow man that's going to be the uh, the interview with uh, mark goodwin i hope you enjoy that one uh, i'm going to be editing that one here real soon 
All right. Hey, if you get a chance, come by the website, drop me a line in the comments section, or hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Always love to hear from people and get feedback that way. And if uh, if you feel you're getting a little bit of value from the podcast, I'd love for you to go over to iTunes and uh, leave a, a review. Um, it's really appreciated. I, I really do appreciate that because that helps get the message out there in, in iTunes. All right. So with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.